Today's show is sponsored by Talkspace, the online therapy company. For a fraction of the price of traditional therapy, you can pick an experienced, licensed therapist you relate to and feel comfortable with. Each and every therapist has at least a master's degree and has completed over 3,000 hours of supervised work. To match with your perfect therapist, go to Talkspace.com forward slash boom. And to show your support for this podcast, use code boom to get $30 off your first month. That's boom. Talkspace.com slash boom. B-O-O-M. You are locked on women's basketball, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Just a quick note before we start the show. Amber Stotts, who we spoke to from the Chicago Sky, we spoke to her late last week. So there's a quick question about Jameera Faulkner. I hadn't been confirmed as of that time, but Jameera Faulkner, of course, sadly out for the year with a torn ACL. So that's any confusion that you might have over that. Rest of the conversation, up to date and wonderful. Really hope you enjoy it. I sure did. Hello and welcome to Lockdown Women's Basketball. I'm your host, Howard Meddahl, reminding you you can follow us on Twitter at LockdownWBB, like us on Facebook, or go ahead and subscribe to us, rate and review us on iTunes or your podcast listen of choice. Also a reminder, make sure you follow The Summit, Summit Hoops, two T's for Pat, uh, for your 24-7 guide to coverage of women's basketball, just launched in April. We've had tremendous response already, really happy about it, and hoping for even bigger things in the months to come. And someone who's also hoping for bigger things in the months to come joins me uh, early this afternoon, uh, and that's Amber Stotch, coach and general manager of the Chicago Sky, done a little bit of everything, and we're uh, here to talk about it. Amber, thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Howard, thank you for having me. A uh, place I'd love to start is really at the beginning for you. How did you fall in love with the game of basketball? <laughs> That's a great question. I come from a basketball family. I have um, an older sister, an older brother, and a younger sister, and all of us played basketball as guided by my father, James Stock, mm-hmm. who was a college and professional basketball player for the Kentucky Colonels, mm-hmm. and, you know, my father loved the game, and um, just, he was also a coach, so we grew up around the game of basketball on TV, and, uh, well, you know, on the three channels that our TV received, <laughs> mm-hmm. before all the premium cable channels, and, um, you know, we grew up around, more importantly, we grew up around the game live we were always outside in the driveway or always in a gym whether it was at one of the siblings practices or games or at one of my dad's um teams that he was coaching at one of their practices or games so always in the gym and from you know i don't remember a day uh without basketball do you think the fact that your father, James, and for, for those of us who, who don't know, he was the first African-American player to graduate from Murray State, so he was you know, a trailblazer there, going to play for the Kentucky Colonels at a time where race relations in this country were, uh, if anything, even more fraught uh, than they are today. He was a trailblazer in a lot of ways. I think anyone who succeeds in women's basketball, and certainly someone who does it as much as you have, has to be a trailblazer in that same way. Do you think that pattern was set for you as well? No, it absolutely was by my father. You know, there there are a lot of things that my father uh, 
guided and continues to guide my siblings and I on with our lives every day. And he was a trailblazer at Murray State and within the community as well, and that's important to note. He still is very involved in the community and serves as president of one of the local NAACP chapters in Atlanta. And that's something my dad always, uh, my father and my mother always um, provided us the room and empowered us to never shy away from obstacles, never shy away from, from being the first at something. And that said, never shy away from giving your time to your family, your community, those around you. Um, when I was in third, you know, many people have heard this story countless times. When I was in third grade, I saw um, a coach who was a female coach for the first time. And I, I remember it like it was yesterday because up until that moment, every other basketball coach that I knew was a man. And I had not yet seen a woman coach basketball. And after she came to speak at the basketball camp, I asked my dad, you know, you know, what job does she have that she has that much time to coach basketball? And he said, well, that is her job. And I looked at my father in total surprise. I said, Dad, she gets paid to coach basketball? And he said, absolutely. And I said right then and there, I said, Dad, that's what I want to do when I grow up. Well, that, that's a wonderful story. Not one I had heard before. And, and I think speaks to something that's larger going on in the league right now. Uh, to see you in this position, to see Swin Cash in an executive role with the Liberty, to see Tamika Catchings, to see women of color assuming executive positions in the league. I think it is really significant. Do you think it takes the WNBA and the ability for teams and players to relate to another level as well in a league that has been majority African American during the duration of its time? Well, I think it speaks to the versatility of um, the, the talent of the athletes in the league as well as just the versatility of talents and skills of women and all athletes in general. There's so much that athletes have to offer besides their skill on the court. And Swin Cash and Tamika Cashings are prime examples of, of countless examples, but those two are prime examples of just how the business savvy and the grind, the grit, the um, the intellect to have executive positions, the poise under pressure, you know, all of the, the skills that students across the country are, are trying to acquire when they're trying to earn an MBA. Mm-hmm. Many of the professional athletes in this league exhibit those skills and are growing those on a daily basis. And transitioning off of the court into executive roles is naturally fitting for for many of the professionals in our league. Yeah, and and the opportunity too. I think that is the key component, uh, as you point out as well. I, I was talking to Carol Austin about this a few weeks ago, and she talked about the idea that former WNBA players are the greatest untapped resource for leadership uh, in 
basketball today, and I think that is so true. So seeing the opportunities match with that talent that you speak to uh, is really wonderful to see. Uh, to get back to your personal story, I know you spent time, you played at uh, University of Cincinnati. Uh, I'm curious, there's been over the past few weeks uh, a, a fair amount of consternation about the fact that uh, during the rebuild of the arena that the men are going to be playing uh, at a at a college gym, and the women are going to be playing at a high school gym. Uh, wondering if you had a chance to look into that and what your thoughts are uh, about that disparity, which uh, concerns a lot of people. I, as you mentioned, I'm a Bearcat. I played basketball at the University of Cincinnati, and so the women's basketball team, and you know, having the perspective of you know, what, um, what is the best fit for the game for that specific team? You know, I, I would say my insight on that as a former player is going to be, you know, relatively different than a lot of others. Sure. The atmosphere and the climate around that basketball team, um, they're really not, la- they're, excuse me, they don't have the support right now that they should Hmm. and for whatever reason the attendance I think should be higher and the support from the community and the support from the student body could be increased as well so that said taking a snapshot of where the team is at this moment not only this team being the University of Cincinnati, but there's other teams in the country who see the benefit of and reap the benefit of playing in a smaller size venue. Hmm. The atmospheres increase, the energy gets a little excited, excuse me, a little bit more excited. A great contrast or another example is when you look at the ACC tournament mm-hmm. this season in 2016. The eight, the women's basketball ACC tournament was played on a college campus, not in a big convention center arena. And many commented on the enjoyment of that smaller venue host such a big, large-scale tournament. So there's a lot of different perspectives, but, you know, trying to make lemonade out of lemons, so to speak, Mm -hmm. there are advantages, ways to look at that positively. Yeah, it's interesting, and it is a different perspective. And I think the concern is, of course, that we end up in a chicken and egg scenario, and that as long as the women's program is treated as somehow less in some way, that it will be forever followed less. And there's a cycle there as well. But Absolutely, the venue and the excitement level that goes well, into it—it's—it's it's a complicated question. It's no, there's no question about it. It is, and and I'll say this too, Howard. The University of Cincinnati does a fabulous, fabulous job of, you know, ensuring that all athletes in all sports are supported hmm. and treated you know, with the the dignity and respect that they deserve. And my brother was a 
an athlete on the men's basketball team under Bob Huggins. Mm-hmm. And so I being a women's basketball player, my brother being a men's basketball player, you know, I, I saw behind the scenes very closely. And yes, there's going to be differences, but never did myself or my teammates feel as if the university uh, slighted us because of our gender. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and again, the the hiring of Jamel Elliott and and making sure that the team is a priority is really significant. I have a lot of respect for Jamel and also for Mick Cronin on the men's side. So yeah, it, it's it's one that it might be as much perception as reality, if not more so. But that that perspective on it is really interesting. I appreciate it. I'm curious about your perspective on a couple of uh, people who you had the opportunity to work with uh, going through your uh, assistant coaching career, one of them being uh, Muffet McGraw and the other being Pat Summit. What similarities, I guess, did you see between the two of them, obviously being able to work closely with two of the fundamental builders of the women's game? Well, Muffet McGraw and Pat Summit are exceptional leaders. They're exceptional executives. They're exceptional coaches, and exceptional women, and, you know, outstanding So I time at Notre Dame, um, I working with uh, Muffet McGraw on the periphery um, as my role was primarily in the strength and conditioning element. And so my time with Muffet and Kevin McGuff, Latif Bowen at the time, Carol Owens, um, who were all the assistant coaches, was mostly on the court. Mm-hmm. And some, a couple things that stood out to me with Muffet McGraw was when the team would have inter-squad scrimmages, how game-like she was during those. And she... Positioned herself, um, responded, coached, just like game situation. And that really struck me as not only do the players need to play game like, hmm. but how she took those opportunities to coach game like as well. One thing that um, when I was early in my career, you know, I asked, you know, Muffin, you know, what's the secret being a great coach and a great mom? And she laughed and, and she said, um, become a head coach. <laughs> yeah. He said head coaches have a lot more flexibility with um, with their uh, the schedule, and as an assistant coach in the college ranks, there's so so heavy recruiting. It's mm-hmm. so hard on these college uh, assistant coaches right now because the recruiting demands are nonstop. So, so then, are um, are you arguing <laughs> that being head coach and general manager? is somehow easier than assistant coach? Does that seem like no. quite a lot on your plate as well? <laughs> no, not at all. But I will say, I will say that, you know, you look at all these teams across the country, whether it's um, NBA, WNBA, or NCAA, NAIA, all, every coach, Howard, is working hard. No question. All of us yeah. are rolling up our sleeves. And, you know, in my mind, I don't think any one of us is working harder than the next. We are all on the grind, and we are all glued to our laptops trying to, you know, decipher that screening action and what, you know, the footwork looking like. 
and how can we be the best um, that we can be. No question. No question. Well, specific to your work, what uh, was your assistant job in Los Angeles, I thought it was really interesting that your specific uh, work there in a lot of ways focused on the front court. And you can make the argument, obviously, a lot of contributions to that championship. But the evolution of that Sparks front court might have been the difference maker, uh, not just against the Lynx, but throughout when you think about what 2016 ended up being for the Sparks. I'm wondering what you think that experience taught you about bids here in the WNBA, what they need, uh, how they can evolve, and in a game where a lot of people seem to be going smaller and there's a lot of inside-outside action, uh, both inside and out, in terms of the players, uh, what you think that means you need out of your fours, out of your fives? Oh, great question, great question. Well, you know, my perspective on post players actually um, really was, you know, honed a lot at Tennessee. So hmm. kind of going backward before we go forward here to take a look back at my time at Tennessee with, sure. with Pat Summit, um, Mickey DeMoss, and Holly Warlick, Al Brown were the assistant coaches, and Mickey Caldwell at the time. And watching the post-game develop, Tamika Catchings was on that team. And the workouts that those post players did on a daily basis and how, um, how with all of the talented perimeter players at Tennessee and Carol Lawson being one of them was an athlete um, during my, my days at Tennessee, mm -hmm. watching how that the post could be such a focal point, um, even with the, the spectacular talent on the perimeter. Watching Pat and the coaches delicately balance the inside-outside action and then off of the court so much we all learn from Pat about the mental toughness, the um, emotional compassion, and just the overall care for not only the athletes but care and love and respect for the game itself. Well, that is what I took to Xavier and then to Tucson and then to Los Angeles. It, it, and it's, so, it's no surprise, I guess, that Pat Summit in yet another way was ahead of her time, but that is really interesting to think of a direct line intellectually from the early 2000s and Tennessee and what you guys did in L.A. last year. Oh, there, there's unquestionably a direct line. Hmm. There would be, you know, even if it was just drills we were doing in Los Angeles, some of the drills were drills that, that I picked up from Pat at Tennessee. Um, certain phrases um, that players will hear when I, I coach are phrases, you know, that from phrases straight out of Knoxville. Right, right. Very, very interesting and, and obviously worked. And uh, fascinating to see uh, LA's continued development, to be sure. But of course, uh, you are here in Chicago now, uh, making uh, making some different choices with uh, a different roster. And so, I guess the place to start with that is to uh, take me through draft night. It was not your conventional, typical WNBA draft in a lot of ways. So, 
you know, how how was that experience for you, both just from a basketball perspective in terms of evaluating and even, even just personally what it was like to go through that and being on the clock? It was a great experience. You know, I was fortunate to be surrounded with, um, you know, the assistant coaches who are very knowledgeable about all of the draftees. So we had um, a great room and then, of course, the, the – um, Ownership, led by Michael Alter, was in the room. Um, the draft was extremely um, fun because there was such a talented pool of players across the board. Um, going first, second, third round, there's just a, a wide variety of players, and they're all they were all very talented and, and looked like great opportunities to, to coach. And so specific to that, when you get to that two pick, and there there are so many players on the board, you know, various positions. Obviously, there was some questions, and you know, people were wondering about the fit of Elena, uh, Elena Coates, uh, on a roster. You know, where you have a Steph Dolson, you know, where you have an Imani Boyette, uh, and and I I of course harken back to L.A. where you guys did not hesitate to go big with a bunch of different players. But I, I'm wondering if you could take me through, once Elena is healthy, how you could see those the balance of that trio working. What's sort of the ideal outcome for Coach Dolson Boyette together? You know, every player brings something different to the table. So while on paper they may all look to be similar, they all have different strengths, mm -hmm. both offensively and defensively. They have different leadership strengths as well. And so their talents complement each other. If I have two people maybe with the same stat line or in the same position, um, having that depth and having a, that versatility brings a positive attitude to the team and it brings a, a lot of good energy and confidence knowing that across the board positions one two three four and five we are deep and legitimate contenders to compete um, with the other teams in this league who are extremely deep and extremely talented this is a hard league to play in and you know equipping ourselves with the right tools you know just, we're just trying to stay in contention. Do you see it as an opportunity to, let's say, zig when the other teams are zagging? And by which I mean, look, San Antonio ultimately, by, by drafting Kelsey Plum, uh, by holding on to her, is making a conscious choice to go small. A lot of these lineups are going smaller in general across the league. And you contrast that with a roster where you have those three. You have, you know, Jessica Breland as well. You got Cheyenne Parker uh, as well. Do you see it as a chance to go big and counter what a lot of other teams are doing? You know, that's a good, interesting perspective, Howard. And, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I'm so much planning this roster based on other teams' rosters. Mm -hmm. The focus is to have this roster in Chicago, have our roster, our team, our dynamic be the best that it can be. Mm -hmm. And 
and make other suggestions to you, in other words. Yeah, we'll take each game one at a time. And, you know, one by one we'll, you know, prepare our scout and prepare our game plan for each opponent individually. And with that said, we, we will do what we do and we will play to our strengths. And if our strengths, you know, if one of our strengths is being big and, and going inside and having an, an inside-out attack, then that's just what it will be. And, you know, we're, we're going to have to adjust to other teams, and other teams are going to have to adjust to us. That's just the name of the game. And and I just last point on that. When you look at uh, Steph and Damani on the court at the same time, it's interesting because you talked about they have different strengths, and there's no question about it. Steph is someone who would step out beyond the three-point line uh, back when she was in Washington. And in Imani, you had someone who, as a rookie, was top five in the league in block percentage. Do you see defensively uh, Imani is more of a rim protector and Steph on fours or the other way around? And then on the offensive end, do you see Steph as more of a classic stretch four and Imani playing around the hoop? I'm hoping you to take me through sort of how you see working them out together. Yeah, you know, that's an, an interesting question. With Stephanie and Amani um, playing together, you know, we can't really designate one as a rim protector and then the other one as the perimeter defender. You know, again, going back to this league and the opponents, we're going to have to defend every position. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's defense in three seconds, so was, I would love to have Amani just sit at the rim and hope she can't. Right. So when we are playing teams that, you know, that are running, you know, let's say a lot of screen and roll actions, both both of our players and, and all of our post players, for that matter, are going to have to have that combination of, you know, helping their perimeter player, you know, maybe having to hedge out on the guard at time, as well as defending their player in a face-up high post position, as well as defending their player on the block. Every possession defensively is going to require um, a variety of, of defensive angles from both Amani and Stephanie, as well as you mentioned, as Cheyenne and Jessica Breland and, and anybody else that we have in the post, Elena, when she's healthy. Um, you know, Elena and will we'll have to defend a variety of looks on the court. Maybe one player's in one position. You know, Tina Charles, for example, will. She's going to play with her back to the basket, and she's going to play face in the basket. And we're going to have to defend her on all spots on the court. And and, and if you figure out how to defend her, do let us know, because I know the entire league has been trying to figure it yes. out. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, if you, yeah you, I, I was expecting you to send me the social media I, I, I have no answers on that. I just know I'm excited to see Imani as the uh, six-foot-seven stretch four. I think uh, that'll be fascinating for the league as well. Uh, on the other end of things, on the point guard position, uh, you know I, know, I know you guys had some some frustrating news with Jamira Faulkner. Uh, it, it, she's uh, is she out for the season? I know she had the ACL tear. Um, that's actually not been confirmed at this point. Okay. Okay. So, well, you know, we're just looking at things day by day. Understood. Well, if if the injury holds her out for a long time, I know what it does is open up more of an opportunity, uh, even than before, for Tori Jankoska, who, uh, quite frankly, I think you guys uh, stole at the nine pick uh, overall in the draft, and I've been uh, significantly higher on her, I think, than conventional wisdom, not only for 
her ability to do a bit of everything at Michigan State where she was asked to do everything uh, on the offensive end, but uh, her defense, which is underrated as well, was top 50 in the country per synergy and defensive points per possession. I'm hoping you could take me through what you saw at Atori and what uh, persuaded you guys to fall in love with her to the point that she became a first-round pick for you. Tori's scoring ability is really unique. He can get her, um, can create a shot off of the dribble, off of ball screens. She can make ball screens well, which a lot of players um, don't really develop until, you know, in, in the league for a little bit. But she has the ability to do that. I like the way that Tori attacks the rim. One of the things that really impressed me the most about Tori Jankowska is how physical she can play. Mm -hmm. Again, going back to the physicality of our league, you know, having someone who can defend and, well, we'll say attempt to defend um, the strength of Lindsey Whalen, hmm. for example. And, you know, you look at some of the, the guards in our league who are just extremely physical and they're smart. They're very savvy players. And I think that Tori Jankowska will have the ability to, as you said, stay in place defensively, but also stay in place physically. The overall goals for this team, when, when you think about just what this team can be, do you see a jump in terms of defensive efficiency, uh, something into the top six? Are there metrics like that that you are most concerned with when you think about ways for the sky to take a step forward this year? That's something that we will dive into a little deeper after, you know, we have our final roster together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, after we, you know, next week, the games under our belt, you know, at that point we'll have a chance to to further, you know, examine the specific numbers and specific goals that we have for, for some numbers. But at this point, Howard, it's, it's just all about getting out on the court. And so, um, you know, even now, it's about that time for for me to get back on the court with the players and, and us to um, get back to work. Well, then I certainly won't keep you any longer from doing that. But, uh, Amber Stotch, such a pleasure to chat with you and uh, wishing you all the best of luck. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll catch up in person soon, I'm sure. Oh, how appreciate it. I appreciate it. And, and, and have a great one and best to you. Thank you very much. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. A reminder to follow us on Twitter at LockedOnWBB. Like us on Facebook or go ahead and subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes or your podcast listen of choice. And follow Women's Basketball 24-7, 365 at The Summit, summithoops2ts.com. I'm Howard Megdahl wishing you a wonderful day.